Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Thrusting space science into the audio dimension, this is Naked Astronomy. On the Naked Astronomy podcast this month, starting a star, we explore what happens to get stars fired up and watching worlds wonder why planets migrate throughout a solar system. Planets can interact with their environments uh, through gravity and in particular they can interact with the protoplanetary disk of gas and dust within which they're forming. So as soon as a planet grows large enough to have significant gravity, its gravitational interaction with the surrounding disk causes it to migrate, and it's basically unavoidable once the gravity becomes large enough. Plus, news of strange flashes spotted on Jupiter, the origins of the Oort cloud, and bringing an asteroid back home. Hayabusa lands in the outback, potentially carrying a cargo of pristine asteroid dust. I'm Ben Valsler from The Naked Scientists, and this is Naked Astronomy. Supported by the STFC and Cambridge University's 800th anniversary team, this is Naked Astronomy. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientist.com forward slash astronomy. And now we join our expert panel to catch up with the latest news in space science. Joining me this week at the Institute of Astronomy in Cambridge was Carolyn Crawford, Andrew Ponson, and here's Dominic Ford. Well, two amateur astronomers have reported seeing a strange flash of light in the atmosphere of Jupiter on the 3rd of June. This was uh, Anthony Wesley, based in Australia, and Chris Goh, who's based in the Philippines, and they were both pointing their back garden telescopes at Jupiter, and they caught images of a two-second flash in the planet's south equatorial belt. Now, despite some initial scepticism that this may have been a meteor impact or lightning in the Earth's atmosphere. We can discredit those theories because it was seen from two such widely spaced locations on the Earth. And it's almost certain that this was a meteor impact into Jupiter's atmosphere and probably quite a large body to have created such a bright flash. The only other possibility is that this could have been lightning on Jupiter, but realistically, lightning doesn't come that bright. The evidence still doesn't quite piece together, though, because previous meteor impacts on Jupiter have produced scars. For example, the impact of comet Shoemaker-Levy 9 in 1994, and in fact another meteor impact that the same Anthony Wesley observed last July produced prominent scars, which have been seen, for example, with the Hubble Space Telescope. Now, in the last few weeks, NASA have been enlisting telescopes such as Hubble to look for a scar, but so far, mysteriously, they have seen nothing. So there's still something, I think, to learn about what this was. But I think this is a fascinating reminder that just sometimes the sky throws up something totally unexpected. And it's often amateur observers with comparatively modest equipment in their back gardens who notice that something's not quite right and report it. I think it's fascinating in this case. This flash lasted for two seconds and yet two amateur astronomers caught pictures of this event and reported it. 
We've spoken before on this podcast about the role that amateur astronomers actually play. But is it quite unusual to get a serendipitous event like this, where you have two people, totally different parts of the planet, looking at the same thing and both seeing something quite unusual? Some of these people are incredibly dedicated. I was saying that Anthony Wesley has discovered a meteor impact on Jupiter before. These people are often imaging Jupiter all night, every night when it's clear, producing a huge amount of data. So don't underestimate what they can achieve. And these aren't the only observations of Jupiter, although some have involved somewhat bigger and more impressive equipment. We've seen some observations of Jupiter coming out this month, which are about as far from a backyard telescope as you can imagine, because they come from a telescope known as SOFIA, which stands for the Stratospheric Observatory for Infrared Astronomy. Now, that is a telescope that's actually flown on the back of a 747 jet. So if you imagine the engineering challenges involved in not only flying the telescope up there, you could have put a big hole in the side of of your jumbo jet and still make it fly, but also making it stable enough that you can get useful observations, then you can see why this project has taken a couple of decades to come to fruition. So uh, NASA have released these test observations of Jupiter, but it's very much proving that that their telescope is working rather than that we're particularly interested in observing Jupiter with this telescope, because this is a telescope that's sensitive to infrared wavelengths. And the reason, therefore, that you put your telescope on the back of a plane is because infrared wavelengths become invisible from the ground. They're obscured by the water vapour that's in the atmosphere. So by flying at 35,000 feet, it's possible to pick up infrared light from objects like Jupiter, but more realistically in the future, looking to extragalactic sources, other galaxies that are undergoing bursts of star formation, for instance. And it's possible to get that by flying at 35,000 feet. Now, we've spoken actually quite a lot on this podcast about infrared astronomy and that's not a coincidence we really are coming into a golden age for infrared astronomy and we've spoken recently I think last month about the Herschel Space Telescope because they recently released their one-year results and compared to that Sophia has um, it's less sensitive and it doesn't give you such a detailed image as the Herschel Space Telescope but on the other hand it's going to last for longer Herschel will run out of time because it's only got coolant for a certain mission, whereas this one, obviously, you can bring it back to the ground and and service it. And also, Sophia has a wider wavelength coverage, so it can look through, if you like, a a bigger range of colours within the infrared band than the Herschel Space Telescope. You can also compare it to something like the Spitz Space Telescope. In that case, Sophia is actually doing better. It's got higher angular resolution than the Spitzer Space Telescope, although because Spitzer is in space, it can pick up somewhat fainter objects, even though it doesn't measure them in as as much detail. So we really are are coming into a a golden age for infrared astronomy. And in the future, I think our eyes are are firmly focused for 2014 on the James Webb Space Telescope, which is really going to make things incredibly exciting in this field. So knowing that there are some locations in the world that are high up enough with small enough atmosphere to actually still pick up some infrared... What's really the point of spending so much money and putting so much effort into strapping a telescope to a plane? 
Well, you're right. And we've spoken previously, for instance, about Vista, which is, is looking in the infrared from the ground. But the difference is that those kind of telescopes are only looking at what we call the near infrared. So that's almost visible light. Whereas when you go up in a plane or, or better into space, you can get into what we call the far infrared, which really is obscured by the atmosphere otherwise. One of the advantages of infrared astronomy is that we can look at things that are really relatively cold. And of course, something that we know is definitely cold, often called dirty snowballs, are in fact comets. And there's new news about where comets actually come from, Carolyn. Yes, this is uh, an interesting story concerning this solar system's Oort cloud of comets, um, suggesting that many of our famous and most spectacular comets might have originated from outside our own solar system which I think is quite amazing. So the traditional idea is all our comets come from the fringes of our solar system, from something called the Oort cloud. It's this large spherical halo that's about 50,000 times further than the Earth is from the Sun. You have these dirty snowballs out there in space, and every so often one gets gravitationally perturbed and then tumbles towards the Sun, gets heated up, and creates this fantastic tail, this fantastic vision in our skies. So the traditional idea is that this cloud of comets was formed at a very early stage of our solar system and it's comprised of all the icy debris left over from the formation of the planets that then got sort of ejected out to the fringes of our solar system by gravitational encounters with some of the largest protoplanets in our solar system. But the new idea is that instead of just originating from the early formation stages of our own solar system, the Sun may have stolen some of these dirty snowballs from other stars. Even though when we look at our Sun now, it's in a fairly isolated part of the galaxy, we think it, like many other stars, formed within a cluster of stars, all formed from the same cloud of gas and dust. And as each star condenses down, it has its own cocoon of opaque dust and gas that goes on and forms their individual solar system. So the idea promoted by Hal Levinson and his colleagues from the Southwestern Research Institute in Colorado is that maybe the Sun had enough gravitational attraction for it to capture and accumulate some of the comets or the proto-comets from its sibling stars and their solar systems. And then as this original cluster gradually dispersed through time, it tugged and towed those comets along with it. I mean, this idea is not necessarily new, but what is new is the computer simulations of what it's like for young stars in a crowded stellar field. How easy is it to steal things from the outer reaches of one solar system into another? And what the researchers have found is that it's a surprisingly efficient mechanism, and they hypothesised that it could be up to 90% of these comets in the Oort cloud came from around other stars, which I think is quite a nice idea. So, I mean, if this is true, it's going to rewrite something quite fundamental about the formation and what we think we understand about the formation of our solar system, you know, how the Oort cloud formed and also why it's so heavily populated from comets in every direction. So again, it's a very interesting idea and obviously I'm excited to learn more about this or future developments. Conversely, does the theory also suggest that objects that originally formed around our sun got stolen by other stars when they were first forming? Yeah, well, again, that's a very interesting point. You could say the mechanism goes, could go the other way, and it's going to depend on, obviously, all the initial masses of all the stars and the cluster and the relative balance. And so a whole 
number of different simulations of different starting points, different cluster masses will have to have been run to get some kind of conclusion out of this. But yes, you could imagine different kind of clusters that might warp the effect the other way. But the fact is that our all cloud is fairly densely populated with all these snowballs. And there has always been some concern that there are far too many there that can have just been chucked out from the very inner reaches of our solar system out into space. So it's interesting to hear a new idea coming along about how there could be so much stuff out there. Thank you, Carolyn. Dominic, what else have you seen for us this month? Well, new research published in this week's Astrophysical Journal looks at why some galaxies host AGN, or active galactic nuclei, at their centres, while others seem to live much more peaceful lives. Now, astronomers have been puzzling for quite a long time as to why about 10% of galaxies seem to host these bright sources at their centres, believed to be powered by gas secreting down onto a central black hole and becoming extremely hot through frictional forces. But the mystery, in some ways, has really been why don't all galaxies have AGNs at their cores? We think that most galaxies have massive black holes at their centres. We certainly know the Milky Way does. But 90% of these black holes seem to be what's called quiescent. They're not actively accreting gas. Now, this new research study led by Michael Koss at the University of Maryland looks at one theory as to why this might be, which is that when galaxies pass close by one of their neighbours, or indeed crashes into one of their neighbours, the gravitational forces drive the collapse of gas down onto their central black holes and causes them to become an AGN, whereas when galaxies are in isolation, they tend to reach a steady state where no more gas is falling down onto their cores. So this study looked at the environment of 72 nearby active galactic nuclei detected by the wonderfully named SWIFT-BAT camera on the SWIFT space telescope. And what he saw was that about 25% of these galaxies show signs of interacting with a close neighbour as compared to a mere handful for normal galaxies that don't have AGNs. That seems to present some evidence that AGNs are triggered by interactions with neighbours. Then again, this is just 72 galaxies, and as always, this is a piece in the jigsaw, but it will be interesting to see what bigger studies show. Well, that was using the, as Dominic says, delightfully named Swift Bat camera. But another way to look at AGNs is through their radio emission. And that's something that LOFAR is doing. And we've got news about that, Andrew. Yes, uh, LOFAR is uh, named LOFAR because it stands for the Low Frequency Array. And over the last month, the Max Planck Institute in Bonn has released some news about ongoing progress with building this array. Now, LOFAR is one of a a new breed of radio telescope. It's looking at long wavelengths, so the wavelength of these radio waves is around 5 metres. And to get a good resolution image of an object when you're using such long radio waves, it turns out that you'd need an extremely large radio dish to, to get a good picture of that. The thing that LOFAR does is, in, in effect, it cheats. So in, instead of building you know, a, a kilometre-wide radio dish, it uses a, an array of much, much smaller dishes and uses a technique called interferometry to simulate the effect of having one giant dish instead of what it actually has, which is lots of individual small dishes. 
So interferometry is basically a technique where you add signals from the different radio telescopes that you have in your network with very carefully calculated time offsets. So literally, you offset the the time-dependent signal that you're getting from each of these antennae by a small amount. And if you do that carefully enough, it allows you to build up an image that it would simply be impossible to get with one of these individual antennae. The really exciting thing, like in the case of Sophia, is not so much the actual image they've released this month, which is just an image of, of a particular quasar known as 3C196. It's much more the proof of concept. What they've shown is it's possible to overcome certain challenges and, and Now these challenges, rather than engineering challenges in building enormous dishes, become primarily computational challenges. You're taking a a cheap antennae, uh, you're not doing anything clever with the hardware. The challenge is in uh, processing the data in the right way to get the final image out. So the fact that this is proved to be possible is really encouraging and they're getting uh, much higher resolution than any radio dish has been able to do in the past. Uh, they're very much in the early stages of this, so they're, they're only using around half of the stations which are, are spread around um, Europe uh, that, that they're going to be using in the late stages of this project. So there are many more of these stations that are going to open. They should be able to push to higher resolution, including one station in the UK, in fact. So it's almost going to be like having a radio telescope that covers the whole of Europe. So when do we expect the later stages to be? When should it be fully operational? Well, at the moment, uh, we can't be sure. that There's no real word on it. Uh, the technical challenges involved in doing this, computational challenges and just getting all the timing right, is incredibly challenging. So uh, it's a case of watch this space. And finally, bringing things down to earth, quite literally, more exciting news, Carolyn. Well, of course, this is all part of the ongoing process of exploring our solar system. We've flown spacecraft and even orbited around many of the sort of planets, moons, asteroids, comets. We've even landed on some. But the next stage is bringing parts of these solar system bodies back to Earth to to study. And this is not something we've done a lot of. We've brought samples back from the Moon with the Apollo missions. There's been matter captured from Comet Wild in the Stardust mission and some solar matter in the recent Genesis mission. So a capsule has landed out in the outback in South Australia that's hopefully bringing back the first sample scooped up from the surface of an asteroid. So I think this is fantastic. This is a a long mission. It was launched in 2003. It's the Japanese um, Hayabusa mission that made a rendezvous with the asteroid Itokawa in late 2005. And it spent three months there just basically studying this asteroid. And I must admit, it's, it's a weird-looking object. It's kind of peanut-shaped, and it's only about half a kilometre long. And it looks for all the world just like a loose pile of rubble or kind of sticking together under gravity. It's very low density, and the surface is strewn with boulders. So as well as just studying the asteroid and its properties and, and imaging it... At the end of the three-month stay, Hayabusa attempted to collect a sample of dust from the surface. It flies low, it fires tiny projectiles at the surface, they kick up dust that it then should scoop up into a collecting chamber. Now, in the process, it seemed to malfunction at the time, 
but they still hope there was enough dust generated that some of it will have ended up swirling into the collecting chamber, which has then been sealed and has been travelling ever since 2005 and its long way back to Earth. It has been beset with propulsion problems and also communication malfunctions. But finally, halfway through June, it landed out in the outback in Australia. Just before they got to the Earth, the spacecraft and the sealed sample container separated. The spacecraft burnt up in the sky. And the collection sample was protected by a heat shield and finally parachuted down into the desert. It's still going to be a while before we know the answer. It's going to be several weeks before they even open the capsule. There are certain protocols about handling sample returns, and certainly we don't want to contaminate it with any earth particles. So it's going to be transported back to the Japanese research facility near Tokyo before they even begin to open it, and they're going to examine it for a long time before they actually open up and see whether any little asteroid samples are in there. So we're going to have a wait, but the... The potential is quite exciting. So assuming that they do get it open and find that there are bits of asteroid dust in there, what can we actually learn from that? Well, even if they just have a few dust grains, they'll be able to analyse it and learn something about the raw ingredients for our solar system. The trouble is it's very easy to get samples of the solar system from Earth, but the Earth is a very heavily processed object. It's undergone volcanic and geological activity and geochemical processes. The thing about asteroids and comets is they're pristine. And so you're scooping up material that's been unaffected by all these recycling processes. So it's going to tell us something about what the solar system formed from. And if you like, it makes the difference between trying to work out how a cake was made from looking at the end product to actually just having a little sample of what the raw ingredients were. So hopefully we'll learn something more about our solar system. I'd like my next birthday cake to be asteroid-shaped, but hopefully bigger than a few particles of dust. That was Carolyn Crawford, and before her, Dominic Ford and Andrew Ponson with a roundup of space science news. They'll be back later on to tackle your questions. Expand your mind and Neptune in. Naked Astronomy, the stellar space science show. For more episodes of this programme, look us up online at nakedscientist.com forward slash astronomy. Still to come, Richard Nelson from Queen Mary University of London explains how we can observe planets shifting around a solar system and why some are so prone to migration. But first, Jennifer Hatchell from the University of Exeter explains how stars get started. Well, we know that stars form in molecular clouds and the fundamental process in this is gravity. Um, Gravity pulls gas and dust together when it uh, gets pulled together it gets dense and it gets hot and ultimately it gets hot enough to start nuclear fusion and that's uh, what we call a star. There are several different types of stars, there are different sizes of stars. What are the things that contribute to making a star a certain type? That is partly a question of how much gas and dust you start off with. Obviously, if you want to form a massive star, you need to start off with enough mass in gas and dust to do that. But exactly what controls the different masses of the stars is something that we're really working on trying to understand. One way we can do that is by looking at the different masses of cores that we see in the molecular clouds, so the clumps of the dust that we see there, and how that relates to the masses of the stars that are forming within them. 
How long does it take to form a star from a cloud of molecular dust? Well, it can take quite a long time just to get the dust and gas into a stage where it can form a star, and that process probably takes several millions of years. Once it gets there and starts actually accreting onto a what we call a protostellar core, then it takes about half a million years. It takes another couple of million years then for it to actually get to the point where it can start nuclear burning. Before a star is, is lit, as it were, before the fusion kicks off, how on earth can we see them? Well, it's not that they're dark at that stage. You can generate a great amount of energy by throwing gas and dust under the force of gravity into the gravitational potential well. And we see that as uh, accretion luminosity as the interior parts of these cores heat up. And how do we actually study that? Well, we can study it best if we're looking at long wavelengths because in the optical, all we see is the dark clouds in space. If we actually want to probe within those clouds, and then we need wavelengths with which we can do that. And the best wavelengths to do that are kind of microwave radiation wavelengths, what we call submillimeter radiation, where the, the wavelength is a little bit shorter than a millimeter. And I assume that has to be done from space. Well, it's true that some of these wavelengths you can only reach from space, but actually many of them you can reach from the best sites on Earth. So what you need to do is get above as much of the atmosphere as possible. And what really kills you in this business is water vapour. So you need places where it's really dry. So sites such as the top of Mauna Kea in Hawaii and uh, the Atacama Desert in Chile are places where we build these kinds of telescopes. So knowing that we need to be in the right place to see them and it takes millions of years to happen, how can we actually work out what the sequence is? Surely everything we see is just a snapshot of different stars forming. That's right. So it's, it's like one of these games that you get in um, children's magazines. You have a sequence of uh, events and you have to order them into what seems logically sensible. Of course, what we have here is a handle on this because we know what the laws of physics are. So we know, for example, that gravity is only going to make things um, smaller and denser. So that's how we go about putting things in the right order. But yes, we can't watch this happening because the time scales are millions of years. Our lifetimes are just too short to actually see anything move on the times that we can measure it. So what are the big questions that we need to ask now and, and how are we going to go about answering them? OK, so I think what we really want to understand here is what controls where the stars form, what controls the masses of the stars that we form and exactly what the timescales are. And this all comes down really to understanding what the physics involved is. And it's not just gravity. There are forces which are actually opposing gravity, which come from possibly from magnetic fields, and they come possibly from turbulence in the gas clouds. So understanding the balance of those forces is key. The way that we can address this is by actually imaging the star formation in the local star-forming regions where we can identify the individual star-forming events. And that's what we are doing at the moment with three big surveys, with the Spitzer Space Telescope, with the Herschel Telescope that was launched last year by ESA, and with the JCMT on Mauna Kea with its new bolometer array Scuba 2. So understanding how stars form is obviously very interesting from the physics angle, but what's the wider implications? What does it mean for us here on Earth? Well, 
if you're going to form planets like the Earth, then you, they form in the disks of gas and dust around a star. So if we understand star formation, then we can understand how those disks form, and that is part of understanding our own origins. Jennifer Hatchell, explaining why studying star formation helps to explain our own origins in the universe. The clouds of molecular dust that give rise to stars are also the raw ingredients for planets. But rather than politely coalesce from this dust and stay put, once formed, planets have a tendency to migrate. Richard Nelson from Queen Mary University of London explains the evidence for planetary migration. Well, if you look at the planetary population, uh, the population of planets that orbit stars other than the Sun, we see an enormous range of orbital periods and orbital distances covering periods of one day where the planets are orbiting so close to their stars that they're almost touching the surface out to distances of 100 astronomical units, which is bigger than the size of the solar system. So in order to explain that broad diversity in orbital periods and orbital distances, you need to invoke some way in which the planets are moving around in their systems either during their formation or shortly after they've formed. So that's where planetary migration comes in. It's a key component of understanding the extrasolar planet population that's currently being observed. We've discovered somewhere around 450 extrasolar planets so far, but we don't really know a great deal about them as of yet. How can we see how or where they may have migrated? There are some telltale signs. Some of these planets are in interesting configurations. One example of a configuration which tells you something about migration is what's called an orbital resonance. That occurs when one of the planets goes around the star, say, once, and a neighbouring planet goes around exactly twice or three times. So there's what we call a commensurability in their orbital periods. Now, these things don't arise by accident or just by chance. They come about because one of the planets has migrated close to another planet and they've got caught or trapped in this particular configuration, this resonant configuration. And then they migrate together, keeping that same configuration. Now, we know that basically if you do a computer simulation of this process, different resonances are trapped when you migrate at different speeds. And so by doing a computer simulation with different speeds of migration, it can tell us a lot about what type of conditions in which these planets were migrating, how fast they were migrating together. And we can compare that with our basic theories, and so far things seem to work quite well. The very basic idea I have of planetary formation is you have this, what's called a proplid, a protoplanetary disk of dust and bits of rock, and some of them become more dense, they start to accrete, you end up with planets that orbit around the star. Why would they then migrate? Well, because gravity plays a very important role, not just in the formation of the bodies, it's what holds the bodies together. I mean, the Earth would fly apart in the absence of gravity, and if gravity wasn't operating, we'd be flying off into space, Okay, So gravity is very important in holding planets together, but it's also very important because planets can interact with their environments uh, through gravity, and in particular they can interact with the protoplanetary disk of gas and dust, within which they're forming. So as soon as a planet grows large enough to have significant gravity, its gravitational interaction with the surrounding disk causes it to migrate, and it's basically unavoidable once the gravity becomes large enough. So other than extrasolar planets, do we have any evidence of migration in our own solar system? 
Yes, uh, in fact, there is a, a lot of my evidence that the outer parts of our solar system sustained migration after our solar system planets were formed. Uh, the evidence is provided by the Kuiper Belt. This is a belt of cometary bodies, uh, ranging in sizes from a few tens of kilometres up to maybe a thousand kilometres or so, including Pluto and Charon system. And here we see there are a large number of them are located in either the three to two mean motion resonance or the two to one mean motion resonance with Neptune. This is a clear indication that actually Neptune has migrated outwards in our solar system. Unlike the extrasolar planets, which largely seem to have migrated inwards, uh, Neptune and possibly Uranus as well appear to have migrated outwards. The process which drives that migration is thought to be rather different, however. That migration is thought to have occurred after the gas in our protoplanetary disk, the former solar system, has dispersed. And you're just left with basically the planetary system as we see it today in a possibly more compact configuration with a large belt of cometary bodies orbiting at the edge of the solar system. Over time, the outer planets, Uranus and Neptune, would have scattered some of these cometary bodies into the inner solar system. And in order to conserve their energy and angular momentum, as we say, they would have, these planets would have had to move outwards to take their place. And so this would have involved scattering of maybe billions of comets into the inner solar system, leading to the outward migration of these planets and capture of some of the cometary bodies into these mean motion resonances. This would have had very profound implications for the inner solar system planets, the Earth, the Moon, Venus, Mars. Uh, we would have suffered an enormous bombardment of cometary objects during this time. And indeed, if you look at the Moon and, the, and look at the cratering record there, there is evidence that about 700 million years after the formation of the solar system, the inner planets, including the Earth, the Moon and Mars and Venus, were subject to an intense bombardment of comets. So it does fit rather nicely with the observational evidence. Richard Nelson explaining how migrating planets in our own solar system may account for the bombardment that Earth has gone through in its past. This is Naked Astronomy, the space science podcast from the Naked Scientists. If you've got any questions or comments for us, get in touch by email to astronomy at thenakedscientists.com. But now we return to Carolyn, Andrew and Dominic to take on your space science questions. Leo Vila from Miami Beach in Florida got in touch to ask if dark matter might have similar structures to normal matter and even if there could be dark life forms. I put this to Andrew Ponson. Well, firstly, normal matter in the universe is really clumped together. It's not evenly spread out through the universe. It's clumped, for instance, into galaxies. A galaxies are collections of around 100 billion stars, and they're relatively compact, and there's a lot of relatively empty space between each different galaxy. Now, dark matter certainly does clump together in that sense. We know that for sure from observations of galaxies. This was, in fact, the, the original evidence for dark matter, looking at the way that material like stars and gases moving around in galaxies and inferring from that the strength of the gravitational field in galaxies and from that inferring how much stuff there was there. And, and that's how we knew that there had to be dark matter. And in fact, because there's so much more dark matter than normal matter in the universe, there's around five times more dark matter than, than normal directly visible matter, its clumping is incredibly important in terms of determining the kind of structures that form in the visible universe uh, and the existence of galaxies effectively owes itself to 
dark matter. So in that sense, there are structures in the dark matter that are similar to the ones you see directly in the normal matter. Now, on another level, though, we, we don't really know what dark matter is. And so when we're talking about dark matter, we tend to be modelling it subject to some simple assumptions about what it's doing. And you get the best results for the evolution of the universe matching what we see uh, in the real universe when you model the dark matter as completely non-interacting except through gravity. So other than the gravitational force which it exerts and which it's also subject to, it's not subject to any other forces. For instance, um, the electromagnetic force, which normal matter is subject to. And in fact, the really interesting structures in normal matter arise through things like the electromagnetic force. And all of chemistry, for instance, and therefore life, really arises through forces like the electromagnetic force. And for that reason, the evidence at the moment would suggest that you can't have really complicated structures that would be required to create what you might describe as dark life forms. So most likely, there's nothing quite that interesting going on in the dark sector. But until we really know what it is, we can't say for absolute definite. We've had another dark matter question, this one from George Vulgaris in Melbourne. And he wants to know if we can see the effects of dark matter on a local scale. He knows that we can see it at a, a galactic scale, but can we, for example, see it in our own cosmic backyard? Well, for instance, in the solar system, we don't detect any direct effects from dark matter and and that's kind of expected the lack of the kind of interactions beyond gravity that I was talking about electric interactions for instance the, the fact that those aren't there in the dark matter means that it's relatively smoothly distributed so you don't get for instance dark planets um, and for that reason even though there the will be a lot of it coming through the solar system, it won't be clumped in the solar system. You won't really see any direct effects of it on that kind of scale. Just how smoothly distributed it is, whether there are little lumps and bumps, is still actually somewhat contentious and could have implications for people's experiments that are trying to directly detect dark matter. But for now, we certainly haven't detected any really local effects. So we can't really see the effects of dark matter in our backyard. But we've had a question from Dave Green that I'll put to you, Carolyn. He says, if the universe is expanding, but planets and stars are staying the same size, is the distance between Earth and the Sun increasing? Well, this is going not so much from the effects of dark matter on our solar system, but looking at more the effects of dark energy. So staying on the dark side. I mean, space is expanding and it's carrying the galaxies along with it for the ride. They're all receding from us, and we think they're being pushed apart by a force that we call dark energy. And this is currently accelerating the expansion of the universe. But the curious thing is that this dark energy, whatever it is, is a property of space. So the larger the distance between bodies, the stronger the push to drive them apart. Conversely, gravity, which we're a bit more used to, is a property of matter. And it's a pulling force, so that opposes the expansion. And gravity, the gravitational pull, is stronger the more mass that's there and how close you are to it. So whether the pull of gravity or the push of dark energy dominates over a given region of the universe depends on how much mass is there and how widely separated it is. 
if you're far apart, the push of the dark energy wins, but if they're close together, gravity's going to dominate. And you have to remember, in astronomical terms, our solar system is absolutely tiny. The planets and the sun and all the constituents of our solar system are very close together, and there's no question that gravity wins in that circumstance. And even on the scales of the galaxy, gravity is the dominating force. Even between groups or clusters of galaxies, gravity is gluing them together. And you're only going to get this expansion of space on the very largest scales, where you have sufficient space that the dark energy can dominate. Staying with properties of mass, we've had a question from Anshul Singh. Dominic, I'll put this one to you. He wants to know what happens to an object's orbit when it loses mass. Well, that's a really lovely question because it really has two answers. The very simple answer is that the gravitational force on an object is proportional to how much mass it has. The force you need to exert on a body to accelerate it also depends on how much mass it has. And those two effects exactly cancel out. So all it affects what orbit a body is in is where it is and how fast it's going, not how much mass it has. So, for example, as a comet is orbiting around the sun, it's losing mass because it's producing a spectacular tail that you might see. That loss of mass is not directly changing the comet's orbit, but the force that the sun is exerting on the comet to pull that tail off will be pushing the comet outwards in the solar system. The more complicated answer is that if you have a body with lots of mass, for example, a planet orbiting around a star, you may have heard people talk about how planets produce a wobble in the position of the star that they're orbiting around and how you can use that to detect extrasolar planets. Now, obviously, if that planet loses mass, it will cause its parent star to wobble a bit less. Now, there's a principle of the conservation of energy that says that if the parent star is wobbling less than its position, then the planet has to wobble a bit more, and so it will tend to migrate outwards in the solar system. So to conclude, if a body loses a small amount of mass, that won't change its orbit at all. But if it undergoes some catastrophic mass loss, that may mean that its orbit increases in radius. Carolyn, coming back to you now, we have a question from Grant, and he wants to know what the event horizon of a black hole would really look like. Well, let's just first check we all know what an event horizon is. It's this theoretical boundary that marks more or less the point of no return around a black hole. You know, beyond there, there be dragons kind of thing. And you can think of it as marking the point that even if you could travel at the speed of light, you'd never have enough energy to escape the gravitational pull and you become lost to the rest of the universe. Alternatively, you could think of it as all of the space being so warped by gravity within that horizon that any light path curls back in on itself and leads you any further back into the black hole. So it is, as I say, the point of no return. How far that boundary is from the singularity depends on how much mass the black hole has got and therefore how much gravitational pull it exerts in its surrounding regions. So if you were physically there in orbit around the black hole, which I would not recommend and you chose to step across the event horizon, you wouldn't immediately notice anything different. It is, as I say, a theoretical boundary. I mean, admittedly, by the time you've got that close, your view of the rest of space is somewhat distorted because of this, this warping of space and therefore the light rays that pass through it. And so images of faraway objects become very distorted and very sort of smeared out. But nothing special happens at that moment when you cross the horizon. You can still see the things in the, from the outside because their light has just followed you in. 
The difference is, of course, that no one on the outside can see you because any light that you're emitting can't escape past the horizon. So that's if you're there. Of course, if you're a long way away observing a black hole that's actively accreting matter, then it might be a slightly different situation because the event horizon will certainly become noticeable. As stuff gets sucked into the black hole, it heats up, it glows, it gives off light. I mean, that's how we detect black holes, is from seeing the light from matter falling in under the gravity and, and swirling down the sort of celestial vortex towards the black hole. But remember, as soon as that material goes over the event horizon, no light can escape from it. And so the event horizon effectively marks the outer edge of a black hole. Of course, that's just a very simplified version. It's a gradual thing as the, the light rays and the light paths get more and more curved back in themselves as you approach the event horizon. So it actually disentangling where the event horizon is from the light rays of matter coming from it is a, is a very interesting theoretical challenge, which currently many X-ray astronomers are trying to tackle. And finally this month, a question from Ben Lucky, which seems appropriate because it's the 50th year of the laser and on the Naked Scientist show recently we were looking at laser technology, but he wants to know if you could use a laser to propel a spacecraft. Well, yes, in theory you could. The way that any rocket works is that it ejects material backwards and there's a principle of physics, the conservation of momentum, which says that if the rocket exerts a backward force on that material to accelerate it backwards there must be an equal and opposite push pushing your rocket forwards and accelerating it to move faster. And what matters is how much momentum the ejected material has and that affects how great the push is forwards on the rocket. So could you substitute the exhaust gases of a conventional rocket with a laser or light beam? Well, yes you could because light is made up of photons which, although they have no mass do carry a very small amount of momentum. So, for example, if you put your hand underneath a light, then the light is actually exerting a very tiny downwards force on your hand. You don't notice it because the force is so small, but it is there. So, likewise, a light on the back of a rocket would push it forwards ever so slightly, but the problem is this force is so incredibly small. I did a quick calculation this morning of what power of light source you would need to replace the thrusters on the Cassini spacecraft in orbit about Saturn, which can produce a force of 440 newtons. And the answer is you would need a 130 gigawatt light source. So that's equivalent to the output of several hundred power stations all going into one light source. So this isn't a terribly practical way of propelling a rocket. But, of course, there are actually ways you can use the pressure of light. Uh, for instance, in solar sail technology, and I think there's just recently uh, been an announcement that the solar sail of uh, the Icarus spacecraft has been unfurled. So this is a serious question because it's very inefficient to carry large volumes of rocket fuel around the solar system. And so people are continually looking for new ways of controlling spacecraft. And solar sails are one promising idea. How they work is you have a reflector which the sun exerts an outward force on due to radiation pressure. Also, the solar wind exerts an outward force. And what the Japanese space agency are doing at the moment is trialling this experimental solar sail, Icarus, which is 20 metres across. And they're going to try and glide it down in the solar system towards Venus 
using the solar radiation pressure to control their direction as they glide through the solar system. And it will be fascinating to see how it goes. That was Dominic Ford, Carolyn Crawford and Andrew Ponson discussing your space science questions. If you've got something for the panel to tackle, get in touch by email to astronomy at thenakedscientists.com. That's all we have for this Naked Astronomy podcast. We'll be back soon with more space science news, interviews and your questions. If you'd like to subscribe to the Naked Astronomy podcast, just search for us on iTunes or join us at thenakedscientists.com slash astronomy. Naked Astronomy is produced by me, Ben Valsler, from The Naked Scientists and comes to you from Cambridge University with support from its 800th anniversary team and the Science and Technology Facilities Council. Music